How often do you get to talk to a bona fide princess? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll get to do just that. We don't wear crowns anymore like we did in the olden days. You know, everybody has this vision of princesses and princes and kings and queens with their crowns on their heads. Princess Martha Louise of Norway is a witty and delightfully urbane 21st century royal who's written a book for children called Why Kings Don't Wear Crowns. The princess will tell us what it means to be from a royal family in today's Europe. Also, we'll call my friend Roy Nichols in England to get a primer on the British royal family, complete with suggestions on royal spotting as you travel through the United Kingdom. We'll also take your calls and hear about your travel plans and stories. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. What's a king or queen doing in the 21st century? That's not an easy question for an American to answer. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll consider that question with some European help. In just a bit, we'll get Englishman Roy Nichols' suggestions on catching a glimpse of the royal family in Britain. And later, I'll chat with the Princess of Norway to hear firsthand what it's like being a blue blood and how she aims to make royalty relevant in our modern world. But first, let's check in with your travel questions, dreams, and stories at 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Paul in Olympic Valley, California. Hi, Paul. Hi, Rick. Uh, I want to thank you for all your expertise that you give to all your listeners and everything. One of the reasons that I was contacting you was in regard to the America's Cup, which is going to be in Valencia, Spain, in uh, 2007, with an exhibition in May of 2006. Uh, this is certainly, I don't know how familiar you are with America's Cup, but it's uh, probably the oldest international sporting uh, uh, event that's held. Uh, there will be about nine or ten uh, nations competing as challengers against uh, Alinghi, the defender of the cup from uh, Switzerland. And uh, it's uh, going to be held in the Balearic uh, Sea in the Mediterranean and uh, at the time of the year when the winds are most dependable. I am fascinated by this. Now, where's the Balearic Sea? The Balearic Sea is the immediate sea off of uh, Valencia, between Valencia and Mallorca. How does this America Cup work? It's a, it's a global sailing competition? Yes, it is, and it's between nations and yachting clubs. And uh, this year is very unusual because China is going to be involved and also uh, South Africa. Wow. And, look, out, look out world with China coming into everything, huh? Yes, and two from Italy and uh, uh, two from Spain and one from Germany and one from France. So uh, one from America, the BMW Oracle uh, racing crew. Who is favored this year? Well, actually, the, the defender of the Cup of Lingi is extremely uh, strong, Rick, and this is a, sort of an international competition between not, not millionaires but billionaires. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> So you get that sense when you're, I suppose, then converging around this in Valencia and in Mallorca and so on, there'll be a sort of the jet-set crowd? 
Very much so. Yachts come from all over the world and anchor there to watch the uh, races, which last about three months. The Challengers race each other each three times, and the winner of the Challenger Series uh, races against the defender of the Cup. And the race is held about every three to four years because of rebuilding the boats and the modifications and everything. The crews are 17-man crews on on boats that are 80 feet long with 110-foot masts. Uh, They go about 12 to 15 knots of speed, and they're just magnificent things. So these Ted Turner types really get into that kind of superboat racing. Well, Ted Turner was the last single private individual who won in Courageous in 1977, and his last single uh, individual entrepreneur who was a yacht owner. Now it's mainly between corporations and, and governments. Governments actually put up against corporations. Well, the uh, King Juan Carlos of Spain is backing this very heavily, helping the Spanish uh, field a challenge. But uh, in general, it's corporate. Uh, BMW Oracle are two of the largest corporations in the world, and and, uh, Larry Ellison of the United States is bringing the only American uh, entrant into this. Wow. I'm talking with Paul in Olympic Valley, California. Paul, um, it's hard for me to assess from my little perch here in the United States what the global kind of enthusiasm level is for these various kind of events. If you think about the World Cup, for instance, uh, America's almost oblivious to it, and, and the rest of the world's just going crazy for this thing. How do you uh, measure the enthusiasm from different continents or countries for the America Cup? Well, I would say it's a narrow niche in the sports world, very much like horse racing. Sailing is huge in places like Australia and New Zealand and France and all along the Mediterranean. And so there are, you know, 35,000 yacht clubs in the world. And so I, I would say that there's a, a latent audience throughout the world that is fascinated by the technological developments that come from this. Uh, Rick, it, it's, you can compare this very easily to the uh, Indianapolis 500 as developing techniques for automobiles. Right. Uh, this one of the most uh, complex sciences in the world is hydrodynamics, of uh, movement of boats through the water and what uh, uh, decreases drag and increases speed. So there's a little buzz about some new innovation or something, and then every four years it gets a real trial with this America Cup, huh? Yes, it does. Are there any uh, technical improvements that are sort of the buzz for this coming upcoming uh, race? Yes, very much so. Uh, the boats are narrow in the beam, uh, which is the distance across from the middle of the boat. And uh, they're, as I say, they're uh, 85 feet long, and they weigh about uh, 50,000 pounds, and the crews are extremely efficient. The big changes have been in the industry have been in the improvement of sails and the mast and using carbon and composite materials to build not only the boats but the mast. Carbon, just like they're doing with the new airplanes. Absolutely. Wow. It's a total change like in golf clubs and fishing rods and tennis rackets. And just to review, Paul, what do we look forward to there? Uh, the 11th, 12th, and 13th of May uh, in Valencia will be an exhibition races by the nine or ten challengers. And the defender, Elingi, will also be racing with them in, in what they call match races for three to four days. Then one year later, uh, Rick, in May, will be the actual uh, America's Cup, which lasts three months. So wait a sec. May 2007. Yes. Three-month-long Big America's Cup. It's once every four years. Coming up, it's going to be off the coast of Spain. Uh, Valencia has cut a new channel into the ocean to speed up the boats going out to the racing area. And there will be visibility from the mainland as well as from uh, tourist boats that will take people out to see the Cup. How are you going to enjoy it? I'm going to enjoy it very much, and I hope to do some journalistic reporting on exactly what occurs. And, going to, uh, are you going to be there? Absolutely. All right. Have fun, Paul. Thanks for the help. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye.
Larry in San Diego. Hello. I wanted to kind of share with you a little different take on travel, the kind of surprises that can come unexpectedly, particularly the surprise of my encountering a princess die a number of years ago. Wow. Um, to put this in context, uh, I think it was Albert Einstein who said uh, there are only uh, two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle, and the other is as though everything is a miracle. I, th- I think when we take that latter approach when we're traveling, there are a lot of miraculous discoveries and surprises that occur that can really enhance the travel experience. Uh, I just finished conducting a three-week behind-the-scenes walking tour of England and was enjoying some free time in London. Coincidentally, it was during the time of the royal wedding. Uh, My hotel was uh, not too far from Buckingham Palace, so I thought I would sneak a peek at Chuck and Di as they made their way out to St. Paul's. So I I arrived at the Mall in in front of that long boulevard in, in front of Buckingham Palace, uh, of course, there are about a million other people who had the same idea. Okay, this is July 29, 1981, the day that uh, Di and Charles were married, the biggest uh, wedding, I think, that people could have ever imagined in London. Okay. Indeed. Well, naive as I was, <clears throat> I thought I'd be able to catch a nice glimpse of them, but uh, it didn't work. Their vehicles drove by pretty quickly. I couldn't tell which one Di was in, which one uh, Chuck was in. So I went back, uh, kind of frustrated, to my hotel. Then I learned that uh, they were returning to Buckingham Palace after the ceremony, and they would go on their honeymoon from there. So I said, well, maybe I'll give it another shot. So I walked by, again, in front of Buckingham Palace, and this time there were even more people there, and I was really uh, quite unhappy. But, you know, miracles uh, arise by coaxing the unexpected out of the expected, I think, and trying to uh, take that perspective. Uh, I noticed right in front of Buckingham Palace, as you know, is the Victoria's Monument. And that's where all the press corps people were, all the photographers. And I realized if I could get over there, I could get a nice uh, glimpse of, of these people. So I started to walk across the street when a Bobby approached me and asked me what I was doing. I had my camera uh, slung over my shoulder, and I said I wanted to take some pictures. Then he asked me for my press ID. Well, of course, I didn't have any press ID. But what I did have was my California driver's license. So I pulled that out of my wallet. And you have to understand the time, as I'm sure you do. Security was at a much lower level back then than it is now. So just his seeing the word California emblazoned on my driver's license and my photo appearing and the fact that he had 100,000 other people he had to deal with right then. He assumed I really knew what I was doing, and he let me go on. So I walked over to Victoria's Monument, and when I got there at the base, it was filled with photographers, and then I realized I wasn't going to get any better view from there either. So miracles being what they are, I I decided I would need to rise to the occasion, and that's what I literally did. I started to climb uh, Victoria's Monument. Now, it's not an exceedingly high monument, but it's probably, I don't know, about 100 or so feet. So I started climbing up uh, in the back from left to right, and I arrived just about at the top at the time that uh, 
Princess Diana and uh, Prince Charles were coming out of Buckingham Palace in their horse-drawn carriage, open-aired, no top, and they just went underneath me. And unfortunately, I was too high up because all I could see was the top of their heads. But I knew this was a moment for a miracle to happen, so I shouted out, Die! And sure enough, Princess Diana heard me, turned around, and then our eyes locked. And for a brief moment, I could tell that she was beginning to have second thoughts about that marriage she was getting into. (laughs) And I'm sure this was the seed that led to the downfall of that. So you didn't say, don't do it, die. You just said, die. Yeah, that was it. But it was just the way that she was looking deep into my eyes and mine into hers. Is that right? Yeah. Now, there's a postscript to this. Unfortunately, uh, her untimely death in 1997 uh, brought about uh, a lot of uh, video from those old days, and there was a CNN one on the wedding day, and it had a, a picture that showed the mouth and the crowds there and Victoria's Monument and Buckingham Palace. And if you look closely in the center of the, the image there, you can see a solitary figure right in the middle near the top of Victoria's Monument carrying a camera over his shoulder. And I still have that camera. Wow. And that's and you looked into the eyes of Di, and you I both knew she was Di. making a mistake. Larry in San Diego, thanks for sharing your miracle. Thanks so much. All right, bye now. Bye. The Princess of Norway joins us in a few minutes. But first, we find out about the British royals from our friend Roy Nichols in the south of England. It's kings and queens in the 21st century as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Ik ben Philippe Samijn, ik ben van België en ik reis met Rick Steves. I'm Philip from Belgium and I travel with Rick Steves. Ik reis met Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm very curious about England's royalty. Coming from uh, the colonies like we do, it's, it's hard to keep track of what's going on with England's royalty. And I've got a friend of mine who... Um, I believe he's the personal trainer of uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, um, Roy Nichols, on the line from uh, south of England. Hi, Roy. 
Hello, Rick. I, I didn't realize you realized that about me. Yeah, no, actually, you're just your typical English guy who has grown up with the royalty. You're, you're not even a professional royalty spotter, are you? Not at all. And um, as, as individuals, I feel very ambivalent about some members of the royal family. But paradoxically, I, I think it is an important part of our society and our political structure. Uh, and so from that aspect of it, I'm a great supporter. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? There's that ambivalence, and it's obviously sort of a dinosaur from the past. On the other hand, it has a function. It's a functioning part of your system. What is the rationale for a modern person to support the, the notion of uh, a constitutional monarch in Britain? Um, well, historically, um, Britain was very lucky that very early on, long before um, monarchies like the Russian monarchy and the French monarchy, as did become um, a constitutional monarch, and that is important. Uh, it, it, we went through a great deal of um, uh, heartache doing it. Remember, we had a long, pro- prolonged civil war mm. in the 1640s. Charles I, uh, who was really sort of behind all of this, was in many ways a very, very pious man, a very good man in lots of ways. But he believed literally that he was um, a, an absolute monarch, that he had the um, he was the channel for God's ideas. Now, about Charles what was it. I, he's the guy who was beheaded in the Cromwell That's time, right. right. Uh, even though uh, that there was a section of the country, and, and the, the opposition didn't come from the lower classes, it came from the middle and upper classes, and this was important, that there were Englishmen, um, British people, thinking that uh, it was not right that one individual should have absolute power, and that Parliament had, at the end of the day, had as much right as the monarch to influence the course and the direction of social changes within Britain. So even though America broke away from Britain, uh, you know, because of our disagreements with the king and we wanted democracy and all this kind of thing, Britain was was uh, relatively progressive com- in its um, situation with the king and the queen even 200 years ago. Oh, yes. I mean, in the, in the 1770s, 1780s, the, the monarch still had a great deal of influence. And that influence, I think really um, carried right through until Queen Victoria's time. That's a good point, because the, on the continent you had these abusive monarchs, and mm. they met bloody and, and definitive ends with World War One. right? I mean, beginning of World War I, four, five families, I think, basically ruled all of Europe, and by that, 1918... I think by 1918, they were all gone except for the British royal family. That's right. And I think it was um, Anwar Sadat that said um, uh, eventually there would only be two two queens, the Queen of England and the Queen of Hearts. It's been partly accidental and partly deliberate. Um, Going right back to Magna Carta, there was already um, a a desire to curb the uh, excesses and the power of individuals of the monarch. And remember, with Charles I, you mentioned that he was executed, but he wasn't just executed out of hand. He was actually brought to trial um, and convicted of crimes against his own people. Wow. And that was the important thing. Well, let's get it right up to date now. If you're talking about the value of the monarch today, how do you look at it if you're, if you're just a hard-bitten, pragmatic, modern um, person? I mean, I it's mean, expensive. There is a strong Republican movement in Britain. There has been. Remember, we were a republic long before most other countries were. So that has continued. But personally, I feel that um, governments, democratic or not, need checks and balances. That's how all of our systems work 
yours, the American system does, and the British system. They, they work in different ways, but they have similar checks and balances. So you see the royalty in your country actually providing a check and a balance on... Oh, I, certainly, yes, because all uh, democratic uh, governments can lose um, the sort of de- democratic principle, and they become, become excessive in their, in their outlook and the way that they uh, implement power. You mean the Queen could actually defend democracy if Parliament gets a little bit aggressive? Yes, because all bills, huh. uh, and, it, and it is only a constitutional thing, and, 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 and in truth, like all things, it could be overridden. Mm-hmm. But the Queen has to put her signature to all bills. And the power that is wielded by Parliament is the done in the name of the monarch. But the Queen has no power. The monarch has no direct power at all. Plus, you know, in America, we've got this unfortunate sort of thing where the, the leader of our country has to wear two hats, one ceremonial and one uh, mm. political. And in your case, the, the royalty gets to wear the ceremonial hat, and then the prime minister and, and his gang does the, the hard work of government. That's right. And I think that, again, is important. It's, 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 what it's doing is, is giving the people a figurehead. And a lot of people might not like it, but it is giving them a figurehead. Sure. It does give a focus for something other than politicians who sometimes aren't always all that we expect from them. That's for sure. Now, I'm talking with Roy Nichols, who's an English tour guide friend of mine who um, just has grown up with a constitutional monarch on his coins and paper money. Hey, Roy, uh, enough uh, political science and history. Let's just get into the, the what's going on today here. We got Prince Charles. He just married his longtime girlfriend, Camilla Parker Bowles. That's right. His two boys, William and Harry, are, are young adults now, basically, aren't they? Mm. I think they're 23 and 20 or something like wow. that. Wow. We've got an aging queen who won't give up the throne. Well, she, she can't. Uh, I mean, she does see it as the... Uh, we're very lucky with this present family, whatever you feel about them as individuals, is that they, they see it as um, the, the whole institution of royalty, of monarchy, as being the family firm. Mm. And they see it as their mission in life to do the best they can for their country. And again, I feel very ambivalent about individuals in the monarchy. Hmm. Um, and there's many of them that I, I would not like, I don't think, on a personal basis. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I think they are all dedicated to the, the well-being, the, the common good of the people of Britain. And, and I think they do a good job as far as that's concerned. Let's talk about succession then. We've got uh, Queen Elizabeth. Now, now, basically, Charles is the first in line, and his that's oldest right. son is second in line. That's right. His second oldest son would, would, would be the third in line, and then it goes to his siblings. And previously, Andrew, his younger brother, would have got it, but Andrew has an older sister, right? That's right. And um, actually, and so, so I, well, Anne... I think this, it's going to be the next generation. For instance, if uh, Prince William has a, a daughter, then she will become um, the next in line. So I, I'm not sure that it would actually automatically go through to Princess Anne. But it's, it, from this generation onwards, it certainly will pass through okay. the eldest child. So this is quite Rick. a new thing, this new law that lets uh, daughters trump sons if they're older. Well, this is this has really been um, the sort of traditional way, historical way of passing on the inheritance, the importance of the male child. Right. Um, but this has changed greatly, and I, I think it's a change for the better. It's um, really bringing this whole aspect up to date. Yeah, but speaking of up to date, since 1701, if you're Catholic, you can't sit on the throne. Is that right? Well, um, yes, the, the um, law of succession, but that is being changed as well. Well, in, in the 19th century, there was a big change. There was a, a thing called the Oxford Movement when there was a resurgence of English Catholicism. And the English church, the Anglican church, is in lots of ways a very broad church. 
and there are those the, the sometimes the the border between uh, Catholicism and the English Church, the Anglican Church, is is very blurred. I don't understand why Queen Elizabeth, who has this, it seems like Charles is just like made to be king. Why mm. doesn't Queen Elizabeth retire and let Charles rule for a little while? Because I, I think it would be important in lots of ways. It would be a good thing. But she does see it as a life mission. You might not agree with that, and you might see it as, uh, as something that you should be able to pick up and then put down. Um, but she sees it as something um, that she carries, a burden that she carries, um, until the day she dies. Um, and again, you might be feel that that's the wrong attitude to take about this, but nonetheless, I think she genuinely feels that. So the, the reality is Charles is going to just kind of wilt on the vine and the uh, secession will jump over Charles to the grandsons. I, I think it's very possible. Um, when William becomes, in the next 10 years or so, um, if, if Queen Elizabeth is anything like a mother, and her mother lasted until she was well over 100, right. or just over 100, then it's possible the, the Queen Elizabeth could uh, still be with us in another 10, 15, 20 years. So Charles, at that stage, will be into his mid-70s as well. Well, who decides then? I mean, is there some, uh, is it arbitrary? Um, no, there's, there's, I think it's decided by what they call the Privy Council, which is essentially the Queen and all the senior advisers that are made up from usually members of the government these days. Um, and senior politicians. So they could just say, Charles is an old guy, let's go with William, he's in the prime of life. And... It's possible, but at the same time, there's nothing to say that that should happen. And, and regardless of his age, Prince Charles could inherit the throne. Okay. Now, how... My own good feeling is that, in fact, they would probably leapfrog a generation and, and um, give um, the, the crown to uh, the throne to Prince William when he's in his 30s or 40s or something like that. Well, he's still relatively young and has the energy. Has Camilla been uh, accepted? She was sort of the, the Prince Charles's <coughs> mistress for 20 years, and now yeah. all of a sudden they're married. Uh, and I, I've heard the Queen is kind of cool, cool to Camilla. I, I, I'm not sure that people know the truth. Mm -hmm. um, the royal family have always, with one or two exceptions, been very good at hiding their true feelings. Um, there's a lot of jokes still made about um, Camilla within Britain. Um, about her appearance and all sorts of things. I actually quite think it's a, a good thing. Um, the marriage between Diana and Charles was very unhappy. It ended tragically, and it ended in Diana's death as well. And the marriage was uh, a sham, I mean, really. It well, exactly. And, and, and Charles with arms. hindsight, um, mm. Charles and Camilla should have been married 30, 40 years ago. But um, I, I think it's good that they've found some happiness in their lives, and I don't think anybody should deny them that happiness. I'm talking with Roy Nichols, a tour guide friend of mine from the south of England. And Roy, is the family name of the Queen Windsor? It is, um, because... Because um, they shopped around name. for a royal family a long time ago, and they got a German family, and, and that was Windsor's Well, name. exactly, because Queen Victoria married... Uh, well, before then, the, the, uh, the Hanovers um, were sort of German princes, and then Queen Victoria married Prince Albert Saxe-Coburg, and so there was a very you know German family so titles. Is Elizabeth's and, name then Elizabeth Windsor? Well, they, they they looked around in 1914. George V looked around to, because of the unpopularity of German names at this stage and the connections, they looked around literally for something that would be more English. And in, in all seriousness, they looked at names like Smith and Brown, hmm. um, Jenkins, all sorts of different names. And eventually they decided on something very English. They, they, they chose the name of their favorite castle, which was Windsor. Ah, okay. And, and that's really how Windsor came about. What do you call Charles if you meet him? I, I'm not sure of um, Your Royal Highness, I your think. Your Royal Highness. Yeah, there, there is a um, whole series of, of, of um, 
you know, respective titles um, for the Queen, right down through the princes, down through all the um, minor members of the royal family. And I honestly, I'm far from being an expert on it. And Elizabeth signs her name, Elizabeth R., right? That's right, Elizabeth Regina, Elizabeth the Queen. One thing that's just fascinating for American tourists is to see how your gossipy newspapers treat the royal family. I mean, it's just... um quite, uh, tab- well, it's just the quintessential tabloid kind of coverage. Well, I think in Britain we tend to have, like a lot of things, both the best and worst of It's true, papers. you do, don't you? The highest and the lowest. Let's talk very quickly about the gossip. Um, William and Henry, uh, are they heartthrobs? Are they like rock stars in Britain? Um, well, Harry's gone into the army and he's going to be a professional soldier. So is William. Um, I, sh- I suspect probably for a um, a reduced time, he'll take a short, relatively short commission. Um, they're both good-looking young men, um, and there's all been all sorts of speculations about um, people involved with both of them. Beth in Houston emailed us, and she asks, what are the best places uh, and ways to see the, uh, the royal family as you're traveling through Britain? Um, I, I, I don't try and spot the royals, to be honest. I've, I've, um, I've seen them quite a few times over the years, accidentally. Some of the newspapers, I think it's the Times will carry the, oh, I think they call it the court circular, um, and it will actually tell you where the, the members of the senior members of the royal family and what sort of things they're doing. Is that right? So if you're in London, you can look at the Times newspaper and, and you'll find a place in the list where the royals That's are That's right. I mean, it's not always just the Queen and Prince Philip, but other members of the, the, the royal right. court and what they were doing. And, of course, this was much more of an important thing in days gone by, and it's less so today. But you can still find out about those details. They're always opening up hospitals and factories. Yeah. Do you still say "God save the Queen" and this sort of thing in school or at soccer games? Or um, no, they they sing the national anthem um, at sporting institutions. But we would never dream of um, certainly in, in in schools in Britain. We don't have um, sing the national anthem every day. No, so there's not um, any it, sort of Queen worship going on institutionally. Far from it. There are, there's always been a small amount of people uh, who are devoted that way to the monarchy and to the queen. Um, most people are very detached about it, I think, mm-hmm. and perhaps to a certain extent reflect my own personal attitude, which is that it has a, a role. They have their strengths and weaknesses like all people in the world, right. um, but they do something important. Susie emailed us from Pleasant Ridge, Michigan, and Susie uh, reports that if you time it right in the summer, the Queen leaves Buckingham Palace uh, from about August to October, and the palace is largely open to the public. Timed tickets limit the number of people admitted. It's a good way to see how the current royal family lives, as well as the, uh, enjoy the history of the British monarchy. The artwork alone in Buckingham Palace is astonishing. Rembrandt paintings are just a few feet away from you. Money raised supports the refurbishment and upkeep since the fire at Windsor Palace. If you're in Scotland during that period, you might catch the Queen in her summer residence near Balmoral. And uh, the Queen's Gallery, just uh, outside of the Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh, is uh, another opportunity to see great royal art. Roy, the, the royalty has a wonderful collection of royal art. Oh, it, I mean, it is. I mean, they've been great collectors, certainly since George III's time. Um, I, I remember reading about the, the Royal Stamp Collection. It's worth £120 million. That's $200 million? Oh. And that's the stamp collection. There was a really amusing story about George the, I think it was George V, and his equerry, which is like a senior assistant, came in one morning uh, when he was still the Prince of Wales um, and, and said, um, you know, flashed the, the, uh, the Times of London in front of him and said, Your Majesty, Your Majesty, some fool has just paid £10,000, which 100 years ago was worth a, a fortune. Um, somebody's paid £10,000 for a stamp. And the Prince of Wales, the future George V, turned around and said, that fall was me. Um, 
and it's worth an absolute fortune these days. So they've been very avid collectors, and uh, most of this is actually held in the personal collection of the of the royal family, not um, as a as a collection for the country. So I get a sense there's a lot of treasures that are sort of the private domain of the and they they dole it out in little bits and pieces to well, make they do. Available and, and the to queen the is very good these days about. Um, having special ex- exhibitions and things, mm-hmm. and that is one of the good things. I, I think probably one criticism that everybody's ever had of the royal family is this need to modernise and to interact more with the people of the country. And Charles was, and that's one of the things he's really trying to do, I think, uh, for all his faults. Yeah, let's connect with the people. It must be sort of yeah. an annoyance for some of the royals. Well, it's something they're not used to. Um, and, and, and in truth, you have to say they have no real... The vast majority have no real understanding of the lives that most people live. Uh, I think somebody that people like Charles, and I think the new generation, this is the one thing I think that Diana really gave to her children and was a very positive side to her, was the fact that she had a more awareness of ordinary people's lives and the need that they, the young princes, understand that. A hundred years from now, will uh, your grandchildren be uh, living under a, a constitutional monarch as you are today? Um, I think it's a good chance. I think of all the royal families in the world, um, I, I, I don't think it will ever be forced on the people um, and we will suddenly become a republic overnight. I don't think that will ever ha- happen because the British are conservative in the true sense of the word. We don't like changes. We like to hang on to things that feel familiar. And I think if we ever lose the royal family, it will just fade away and become an irrelevance. In, in a very, very changed world. Roy Nichols, thank you very much for giving us a peek into your royal family. As always, Rick, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so now we've gotten the scoop on Europe's most famous royal family, but Britain's not the only country with royalty. Next, we're joined by the Princess of Norway to find out firsthand what it's like being a princess in the 21st century. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, and she's really got a lot to say. It's Norway's Princess Martha Louise, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Today I want to talk with um, a princess from Norway. How's that? I have uh, Princess Martha Louise on the line, and, and she's written a book called Why Kings and Queens Don't Wear Crowns. And uh, I'm uh, talking to Princess uh, Martha Louise from her home outside of Oslo. Princess, thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I've never talked to a princess before, so forgive me. Uh, just give me a little etiquette. Do do people address you Princess Martha Louise, or, or how? Yeah. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> you sound like the, the uh, you, you don't need to stand and kiss your ring, it sounds like. <laughs> Sometimes you do. No, I'm joking. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, no. It's new times now, you know. New times. Um, that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, new times also has Europe's royalty doing entrepreneurial things. I was just watching a, a TV show hosted and produced by Prince Edward, I believe, from the English royal family. Right. And uh, now you're writing a guidebook, or not a guidebook, you're writing a book, a children's book, a delightful book, uh, Why Kings Is and it- Queens Don't Wear Crowns. Yes, it's it's um, uh, exactly the encounter with the with the modern world because um, we don't wear crowns anymore like we did in the olden days. You know, everybody has this vision of princesses and princes and kings and queens with their crowns on their heads. You know, and and when I talk about crowns, I don't mean tiaras because there is a big difference and a bit of a confusion between tiaras and crowns. 
tiaras are um, jewelry that the women wear um, on their heads, like when they're really, really nice with their long ball gowns and and their medals and all that. And that's not for the men to wear. And the crowns are made of pure gold, and they go all the way around the head. And uh, they have precious stones in them. And so they're very heavy and very unpractical to do different things with. And this book, Why Kings and Queens Don't Wear Crowns, um, is because when I was out um, doing my official functions around Norway, there were always mothers, you know, or fathers for that matter, pushing their children forward, going, look, look, there's the princess. And the children would go, no, that's not the princess. So yes, yes, that's the princess. And then we'd go, no, she's not wearing a crown. <laughs> and they were really disappointed. And all these children were so disappointed all the time, I thought, right, I have to do something about this to explain why we don't wear crowns. Wow. And so I've done a story because um, Norway is a very young monarchy in the fact that we've been under Denmark and then under in union with Sweden for very many years. And uh, in 1905, we split from the Union, and they went searching for a Norwegian royal family. Now, they went to my great-grandparents in the end in Denmark, um, and he was a prince of, of Denmark, and she was a princess of um, England or Britain. So they got both the Germanic and the British line all in once, and she was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria, actually. And they had a little child of two years old, so that was also taken care of. And so um, they came to Norway in 1905, uh, and they had to learn how to be very Norwegian. And that's where the book starts, uh, where my grandfather then, being two years old at the time, um, got crowned in 1906. His parents got crowned in 1906. Um, in the book, he gets crowned too. And he has to learn all these Norwegian ways, and it's very difficult with a crown on his head. Like he had to, and we have snow in Norway; it's very cold, and um, and so he had to make snowmen. And of course, the crown got ruined, and his parents got really mad with him, and he had to sit on his throne that he hated. And then he went sledding, and the crown got even more ruined. And in the end, he tried to go ski jumping, and. Uh, the king and queen also tried to go skiing, and uh, it didn't turn out very well, and all the crowns got lost and were ruined. And so they decided to put them on display instead. Uh, now, the the whole uh, theme of the book is, uh, for instance, that uh, the queen says in the end that the a crown on your head is only there for show. What really matters is that you wear the crown in your heart. And so from that day, all the royalty wore their crowns in their heart. Um, wow. So a queen, of Norway, head. a queen of Norway actually said this to uh, her children uh, in teaching them how to wear the crown properly? Um, yes, that's what I made her say with, okay. <laughs> in the book. In but the it's book. an explanation. Like, the truth is that they came to Norway in 1905, and they did ski a lot. And, and I've grown up with pictures of my grandfather, King Olav, um, who skied, sledded. Um, he uh, was a lot outside. He loved um, the Norwegian nature. And uh, nearly till the day he died, he went skiing every single day. And he was an avid ski jumper and even jumped in the Holmenkollen, which is a 
one of our most famous ski jumps in Norway. I've seen beautiful photographs of him and the royal family at the ski museum at Holmenkollen, and I understand yes, that was exactly. quite yeah. an inspiration for the Norwegian people to see their king out there skiing with all the people. Yes, and 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 also, I mean, think if he had had to wear crowns going ski jumping, that would be quite hard. So, <laughs> Martha Louise, did you draw on your childhood experiences when you wrote this book? Uh, yes, in a way, because it, it is trying to find um, what your place within the royal role is, uh, within being a princess. Uh, what can I do and what can't I do? Um, and that, I think, is with everybody in life. Uh, the important thing is not what you wear on the outside. Like, it's not wearing a crown on your head. It's actually what you, what you use your life to do. I mean, what you, want, what you choose to do with your life. That's what is important. And, and it's not what kind of car you have or those kind of external things. It is more the internal... Um, you know, I think, I think Norway life. is an inspiration in that regard. You had a political movement called The Future in Our Hands with a Norwegian philosopher, Eric Daman. Do you remember mm-hmm. him? And it mm-hmm. was, the whole idea was they did a, a survey in Norway and they found Norwegians were ma- satisfied with their material wealth and they were going to find success and fulfillment and meaning in life in things that were non-material. And Norway has been an inspiration in so many ways uh, in the capitalist world. Um, in that regard. Uh, as a small child, you're, you're writing a book for children. It must have been strange for you because you're sort of fast-tracked into being a good, um, a future uh, queen of Norway. Do you have some kind of preparatory school for this? And would that be a frustration for a little girl that just wants to be out playing in the snow? Um, well, I, I'm not going to be a queen. That's my brother that's going to be a king. Um so I'm I'm not going to take over <laughs> in so you, that you, way. You don't have in any, that respect. but you have formal. You have expectations to play out your role in Norway to be a public uh, figure figure for the royal family. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. Uh, but but not in the same sense as my brother and his wife and his family. Okay, so they've got uh, more so, pressure. Yes, absolutely, and that's the case with uh, a lot of of the royalty around Europe now. Again, because there are new times, um, that that it's the crown prince and the crown princess taking over, and and uh, the brothers and sisters, the princesses and the princes, uh, so to speak, <laughs> are um, working, uh, yeah, normal jobs. Really, so there's a lot of royalty in Europe now, n- not the direct um, uh, line to the, the to the throne, to but the throne, a, a lot yeah. of princesses and princes that are out there just. Uh, as teachers or as writers or news reporters or whatever, hey? Uh, yes, well, some work in banks, um, some work with uh, illiteracy and different as- aspects. Is it sort of a big uh, support group or do you network? Is I mean, your royalty, have you ever met uh, Harry or, or uh, William in England? Uh, do you get together? Yes. You've met them? Yeah. Yes, I mean, um, we're, we're all family, you know, in the olden days, all the royalty married each other. Because uh, Queen Victoria is your great-great-great-grandmother or something, is that yes, right? Yes, right. Uh, so you and Harry and, and William are actually cousins. Yes, uh, and also to the Danish royal family, we're qu- quite close because of um, King Håkon, which That's came right. in, in 1905. 
So, yes, we're very close to, and also to the different royal family, because they all married each other um, again. Uh, now, again, those times have changed. And Is there any of this intermarrying going on? I know in, historically there was a lot of um, actual um, genetic problems with, with royal uh, people because they would intermarry. Do you marry cousins yeah. and this sort of thing in the 21st century? We haven't uh, in this my generation not, but in the generation above my parents' generation they did. They were the first ones to actually break out. Um, Are you married now? Yes, I am. Uh, can you could you marry anybody, or was there pressure that you yes. marry somebody of arist- aristocratic or blue blood? Uh, Norway, uh, we don't have an aristocracy, okay. so uh, in that way it, we have a very. Um, one-level society, I would say. Uh, we we don't ourselves uh, put like the middle class and the upper middle class, and we don't class our society. I have friends that have no money. I have friends that have a lot of money, and mm-hmm. it's not um, that's not what the criteria for for the people I know. And in schools as well, there's both wealthy and non-wealthy people. It, like. Um, there's more of a mixed society in a way. I remember when I was in when I was in uh, Stockholm they, and visited the palace at Drottningholm. They made a point yeah. that the uh, the queen would would take the kids to the the regular school, and there was a, made yeah. a, a big point that that there was not this big difference. Yes, and and I think that's very um, important. Uh, um, also a bit different in Norway or in Scandinavia from the other royal families as well. Uh, we have a closer connection, I think, to the people. Um, because we are chosen by the people just 100 years ago. So it's very close. I mean, it was actually the people that chose to have a royal family. It's not like a very, very old um, system that's just right. escalated. Are yeah. the Scandinavian uh, royal families pretty good at staying out of scandals? Uh, we try as hard as we can, but it's very hard with the press. <laughs> is there is there a is there a press in Norway and Denmark and Sweden that's as aggressive as the paparazzi in in England, for instance? I would say that the British press is the worst, um, but they're they're trying to to catch up with them. Absolutely. Wow, that must be mm. an interesting thing for you to talk about when you get together with your cousins from around here, who are all also princesses mm. and princes. Well, the good thing about knowing everybody is that it's not very many people in the same situation, and so you can always draw um, new experiences or other experiences and and other solutions to problems that you have, which is very good, I think. And, and that's also um, like with uh, my book, Why Kings and Queens Don't Wear Crowns, was also that um, King Haakon and Queen Maud, when they came to Norway, they didn't know anything about Norway, um, not in that matter. They weren't Norwegians, and they were going to be also the most typical of the Norwegians. And um, it was about 50-50 for them and against them. So they had a very hard time when they came to Norway, and it was very cold compared to what they were used to. And um, Queen Maud complained a lot about that they was very poor. There were there were, hmm. was no grandeur, grandeur there, and awful things around the palace and and she wasn't very happy in the beginning but they both learned to love the country and and um were very loved by the people after you know, a while mm. uh, by the way i'm talking with uh, princess martha louise from norway and she's written a children's book called why kings and queens don't wear crowns it's available in bookstores all over the united states now and um, uh, princess martha louise you know something a lot of people don't realize is that typically royal families are not from that 
country. Isn't that right? You have to shop around and find a, <laughs> the adequate royal blood, and then they will say, well, okay, I'll, I wanted to be the king of Greece, but I guess I'll be the king of Norway. Yes, exactly. Um, or the the queen of Norway, like my, my grandmother that married uh, little Prince Olaf, but when he came uh, crown prince, and um, in the age of marriage, he made his, married his first cousin. Hmm. Also, Queen Maud and, and uh, King Haakon were first cousins, so it's a lot of close, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of a, close relationships. That could, um, be, that could be your next book, Martha Louise. <laughs> Yes, you could say that. <laughs> so now, hey, um, what what is the what is your family name then? Uh, we don't actually have a family name. So I'm Princess Marjorie of Norway. We're the only royal family that don't have a family name um, hmm. because uh, we uh, again got chosen in 1905 to become king and queen, and therefore there was no line. He changed his name from Carl, um, which is odd probably was too Danish, and so he all, he chose an old uh, Viking name, which was uh, King Håkon, Håkon from the Viking period. I see. Yeah. So you, you choose a, an appropriate name if you're, if you're imported from the English royal family or whatever. <laughs> you don't want to be um, Godfrey, you want to be Håkon. Okay. Exactly. Now, Princess Martha Louise, what do you see the future of the... Con- you're a con- it's a it's the modern royalty. Is it accepted in Norway? Do, do Norwegian... Norwegians are famously uh, straightforward and modern, and... and um, don't they just kind of say this is a, a relic from the past, or do they see this as a value in their society? Um, actually, uh, a lot of people say it's a value um, because uh, I think the main reason being that uh, politicians sway uh, sometimes here, sometimes there. It's nothing constant that you can follow for a long period of time. It's a lot of changes and. Um, but the royal family is there, and they have um, principles and hmm. uh, morals that I think um, the people uh, want. So, uh, so at you, least that's what they say. So <laughs> you, you would so. be ill-advised to take a political stance on a controversial issue? Uh, we're, we're non-political. You're and non-polit- that is, I think, our strongest asset, because um, we, we support people and of course, all Norwegians, and and so we can't take a political stand because then we would choose one group of people uh, right. contra the other, sure. and and that wouldn't be um, wise in that way. Tell me um, what you think about this, Princess Martha Louise. I, when I'm in Oslo, I go to the city hall, and it's to me it sits like a grand church in the center of the town, overlooking the yes. harbor. And yes, you, you step inside, and the main hall feels like a nave. And instead of a pulpit, you have a lectern in the front. And instead of a um, mosaics of Bible scenes behind the pulpit, you have mosaics of great stories of how great Norwegians have contributed to their society. It's almost no, there's right. there's a religion of social contribution and cohesiveness and and being Norwegian. Do you get that feeling? Uh, a very important thing for Norwegian is that we've built the country together, like um, after the Second World War, where we were um, mm. all broken down, like all countries in Europe were. Occupied um, by the Nazis for four years or yes, something. Yes, yeah. five years, yes. It's, and, it's, and it's one of the great sights in all of Europe, I think, is the Oslo City Hall, because you feel the spirit of the Norwegian people and where they've come and, and, and what, uh, what challenges they've overcome. Yes, and you see the toil of the Norwegian people and how they've built the country, and that's the the main pictures in the in the hall. Um, and it's nice because it's on the on the seashore, looking out onto the harbour, and the fjord, the Oslo fjord, that goes all the way 
yeah. into Oslo. And Oslo is a very nice city, of course. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure for me, a second-generation Norwegian in America, to be able to talk to Princess Martha Louise. Martha Louise, best wishes with your book, Why Kings and Queens Don't Wear Crowns. It looks great, and I'm sure it'll be a big success, and it'll uh, clear up that confusion that children have about crowns and stuff like that. <laughs> And thank you so much for sharing a, a little bit about um, about your world. I'll say uh, thank you very much. Can I say Tusen Tuck? <laughs> and uh, and uh, you say goodbye. You say like adieu for goodbye, don't you? Oh, we say Haba. Haba, Haba. That's Haba. right. Okay. Haba. Yes. Good. Okay. Thank you and best wishes. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. I wish we could have talked about Krumkaka. <laughs> I, made, I made some krumkaka. My grandmother gave me a krumkaka iron. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.